Thanks for tuning in to Jin and Tantra. In this episode, we discuss building a life that reflects your own point of view, love as an alchemical process, the exclusivity principle, and the red thread of passion. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jin and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by, and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail your spirit has been longing for. Now, isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. Hey, fellow Jean Tears, those of us like those of us who like our spirituality with a twist. Um, so we're wrapping up this relationship series. I think we're doing we took a little twist in this, as we like to take a little twist. And the idea was to really think deeply about what it means to design a life of your own. And we're kind of using Carl Jung a little bit as a case study. We're also throwing, I think, parts of our own lives in here to talk about what it means to build a life of your own. And whether or not the life that you want to build agrees with the life that I want to build or Daniel wants to build, up to you. But we're at least going through the process of what it feels like to do that, you know? So we've been kind of like going like step by step in these like roundup episodes we're doing at the end. Just to talk about, okay, what are the values that, you know, a little bit, I, I wrote these up, uh, uh, our team in Chicago, the beloved Chicago Bears were getting their ass kicked on a Sunday. I was writing this up thinking, what do I actually think? What does Carl Jung think? I was kind of jotting these notes down about this, kind of knowing that Dana would own, uh, would uh, you know, put in his own thoughts on this too. And uh, it's just kind of this interesting thing of thinking, okay, what does it mean to really try to build a life that reflects your own point of view, which is really the mission statement of the whole podcast adventure that we're doing. I was thinking about it, Daniel, you know, sometimes when we talk about this in text between one another and we talk about this G and T thing, we don't go G and T like an and sign. We go G and T <laughs> like T and T. <laughs> and we put a little exploding emoji behind mm. it uh, because I guess that's how I sometimes think about this, you know, like a little explosion of spiritual thought or something, but also like this idea of this, like what would happen? <laughs> Here's the thought experiment we're doing. What would happen if you just blew up all these rules? You just blew them up for yourself. Bang. What would happen then like, if you just wanted to start rebuilding things from the ground up? What would that even look like? And I was just thinking about that imagery, right? If you just yeah. really exploded it and just said, okay, now I'm starting from scratch. What do I really think about and believe in? So I, you know, GNT, boom. Yeah, I'm sorry. It would so you so like I know that's sort of a rhetorical question, but I think it's one worth tackling. You know? Nope, it was definitely a question for you. Okay, yeah, right out the onset. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's a good question, right? Because that's essentially what we've been. We're we're kind of always asking this thing. So, yeah. if you have a fear of loss and that like that is a dominating feature in your life, then even the sort of thought experiment of doing that would be harrowing, you know? But maybe beneficial too. Partly beneficial, but depends on how you <clears throat> view that. 
depends mm-hmm. on how you view yeah. that, you know? So if that's difficult for you, then you might see this opportunity for freedom, as we might say on one hand, as a huge opportunity for there to be like a, a large gap in experience or that the, the wheels were falling off or the floor was giving out or all that will be around you will be emptiness and not in the kind of blissful, fully containing emptiness, but like actual vo- vacuum, you know, like you would experience a vacuum of that of that state and i think as we've discussed before like you know anthropologically um if you were looking at it from an evolutionary perspective that the loss of one's community or the loss of a, a tight bond or something like this would feel very detrimental to the success of your own uh light living right your own livingness if that's even a word because you might be ousted from it, it would feel maybe evolutionarily that you would be ousted from the place in which you would get your nourishment from. And therefore you might starve or die, or, you know, that's kind of where our minds go to anyway. So there's maybe some physiological response to that, that would be, uh, that would cause you not to do those things from that perspective, right. Specifically physiologically. But then I think on the other hand, and again, it, it really comes down to your perspective, which is what we end up talking a lot about is working with that. You might, feel that there's a large opportunities for you to do something different or do something similar, but with the new mindset. And I think, you know, and I'll certainly let you hear, hear what you have to say, but I think that's the one part of this that we maybe say, but we don't say it enough. Is that like, if someone was to do this or, or, or step into this arena in parts of their life, maybe not all of it, that there has to be wholesale change. That's not necessarily the case. You could do things similarly, but as we've mentioned numerous times, it's not what you're doing, but how you go about doing it. And so if you approach it from a different perspective, but it looks externally like it looked yesterday, the change doesn't have to be reflected in the outer world. The change only has to be experienced on the inner. And that's the really important part for people. Or you know you're doing it because you really want to do it as opposed to you're just like sliding along with some momentum that's just carrying you as opposed to you saying, okay, I'm going to seize control of this. Well, actually, I like this. I don't mind doing this, but at least I know I'm doing this from a different place or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A place for my own really wanting to do it. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, yeah. Um, And I guess part of it's like the exhilaration of this, just going and saying, okay, you know, this is exhilarating to do this, Mm -hmm. to find that spot in yourself. And then all I, I, you know, I said this multiple episodes. All I can say is like, this is the one of the most important things I ever did. So in a weird way for me, this is like a culmination of these whole set of podcast episodes that we've been doing over these years. I mean, we'll keep doing more. Yeah. I won't just like, okay, I'm done. That's it. I'm rolling it up. No. Yeah. But uh, I, this is kind of the culmination of what I actually probably think about this deep down. Yeah. Some of this has been pretty personal for me too. I have um, sort of a slight real life example of a, a client of mine who is not that close to retirement age, what we would consider retirement age, but she's in her mid fifties. And um, she had wanted her between her and her husband, their kids are in college. And so they're thinking about what retirement looks like. And they had, she had said to me when we started working a couple of years ago, Oh, once I get to X amount of money, she never shared the amount of money that she needed. But once I get to this amount of money, uh, we're good. We're, we're set. We can live off of our investments and what we have and you know, whatever. Okay, fine. Well, she ended up early, getting that money early. She said that she got a huge bonus and she had met her goal. And I said, well, when's the retirement party? Uh-huh. And then she pulled out a second card and said, 
oh, I also had a secondary goal of being in a, a career position to be able to be on boards at, at other companies. And I was like, oh, we never mentioned that before. She's like, well, that was kind of a secondary goal. The financial one was the important one. And I said, well, now that you've reached your goal and you can do whatever you want, what are you going to do? And she's like, I'm not sure I'll keep working until I figure it out. But for me, I'd be like, you reached a goal. Like, I guess the question is whether or not once she's on the board, whether there's a secret tertiary goal that another right. card comes well, out. That's, and that's yeah. what I'm saying is that that's the, the question, right? Th this is what I'm talking about is that when, when there's this, uh, this chance to pull the bandaid off and go, okay, now let's do something else. So you like, it's like the American dream, right? Work until you can retire, maybe mm -hmm. retire early. And now you can do what you want with your time. Newsflash, you haven't been doing shit with your time for the last X amount of years, but you know, raising your family and and enjoying dinners and, and some travel, which is beautiful. But the, the, the flame that ha has not been tended to, you know, so your passions for hobbies or meditation or whatever music, it doesn't matter. Those haven't been stoked. So you're starting a lot of things when you haven't been tending to them at all. They're not, they're, they're nations inside of your experience. Yeah, all I can say about it again is like, this was the most important thing I ever did in my life, you know, so the extent that we're trying to talk about what the important things that, you know, you feel like you've done, like, this was it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and then we have a lot of different variations on a theme like this. Yeah. And again, it's the whole thing, like, even you talk about, you know, I was using this G and T metaphor. That's kind of an inner thing to do as much as what you're saying as an outer thing. Yeah. You know, it's an inner thing. You're sort of like, well, let me blow these things. I have to trash my whole life around me. No. That's kind of being the drama mama anyways. <laughs> but I can at least do this inside and then start thinking, okay, what would I really want this to look like? Mm -hmm. Which is really also saying, what do I truly believe in? Yeah. Like, what do I really believe in? Mm -hmm. You know, and let me look at that, you know, from a perspective of like, okay, now I've cleared the entire decks of this. Um, and then, you know, we'll start from there. And I'll right. say what it is that I truly believe in, which, okay. Now our previous episodes partially was, okay. Points that we did, we did like enlightenment is kind of a goal, whatever that means to you. And Carl Jung, he talked about the idea that he wanted to kind of like understand his own inner world, his own unconscious and bring it out and make it expressed. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was one of his big things. He also realized, and he saw that as being partially a Buddhist thing. He got that it was Buddhist. He also said, well, I, I mean, maybe, not, maybe for him, it's not going to be absolutely Buddhist, but he saw it in that context for sure. And we kind of talked about him in previous episodes, his experience of that. Um, and then he started to realize, like, well, I guess I'm going to have to come up with my whole own way of like thinking about my own myth. Because he sort of realized like once I blew this out, you know, this was gone for him. He realized, well, the myths that I grew up with you know, very Jungian way to describe this myths, but okay, the story, the myths I grew up with don't apply to me anymore. And so now I'm gonna have to come up with new myths to guide my life, which I think is a great thing to ask all of us to, you know, what's, what's the myth you would write for yourself? You know, uh, that's kind of like our secret thing anyways, because Rumi talks about that too, write your own myth, right? Um, and uh, he also realized that there might be points of conflict now between himself and the world around him. But he took on the challenge of dealing with that, realizing that, you know, uh, my attitude, my goals, my myth. And he uses this like ethics and morals thing. He said, well, OK, I, I want to the morals of this don't apply to me as much anymore because I don't believe in them in the same way I used to. So I'm going to come up with my own ethics, my own way of how I'm going to look at it and value my life. 
And then we got to the idea of like love because we were ending up on the love episodes. And this was obviously a big part of Jung's life. And for him, it got to the point where he no longer had a, like, I guess, a traditional way of looking at how he thought about love and relationships in the context of his life. We'll explore that more again as we kind of go along in this one too. And so probably the more traditional Judeo-Christian way of thinking about things he grew up with, that wasn't going to work for him anymore. He also wasn't like a biological materialist either, like maybe like a Freud was or like a lot of people might be. That didn't work for him either. So I guess it put him in the position of having to go, okay, I'm going to have to figure out whatever my own value system of this is, right? Mm. And part of that was... Um, changing the meaning of how he thought i'm trying to see like i think it was like energy before form we talked about a lot this idea mm -hmm. that he felt like he had connections with people that were deep and he wanted to come up with ways of living them according to his own terms as opposed to being boxed in to what might have been the way he might have seen things before or what might have been sort of like the cultural attitude you know um and obviously for him that led to something that you would call a polyamory but whether that's a polyamory or in a real sense or not, I guess we can explore that idea too. But that was this idea, right? That was the kind of the the energy before form part of this, which I think gets to the idea of, we also talked about like two different levels of reality, sort of the level of reality that's more like the social level, level of reality and the spiritual level of reality. And those two things may or may not be in sync. So those I think are the main points we've done so far. I know anything else you think you, like, you wanted to add to that one or does that seem like that's a good summary of what we've been no, talking about? That's a good summary. All right. So what did he think about love and relationship then? Because I think that's getting to the capper of pulling a lot of this stuff together. And so because it comes from this energy before form level of reality, on the one hand, it's not going to necessarily follow the rules of this world. And on the other hand, it's, it has a kind of a mysterious quality to it. And Jung really got this. This has been my experience too. I'll be interested in hearing your experience with this as well, is you can't predict how this is going to happen. And then there is something transcendent about the experience of this when it does really appear in your life, oftentimes in unexpected ways. So Jung gets this. I kind of took a couple of his quotes here just to give his feeling for this. Um, and so he would say things like, who can exhaust the mystery of love? I falter before the task of finding the language which might adequately express the incalculable paradoxes of love. In some ways, he also sees it as like the problem of love seems to me a monster of a mountain, <laughs> which for all my experience has always soared to, to greater heights whenever I thought I had almost reached the top. Because, one of the other quotes from him, what occurs between the lover and the beloved is the entire fulfillment of the Godhead. So he's framing this in very spiritual terms. Both are unfathomable riddles to each other for who can understand the Godhead kind of the same way who can understand these kinds of things that magically can happen between people. And, you know, one of the really famous things it says is like, whenever two, meet, two people meet, it's an alchemical reaction, if it really is something. And that means both people are going to be transformed by this. So that's sort of his attitude towards this. And uh, for me, uh, I think I think about things that way. I do sort of see things through the idea that there are going to be people with whom you have something a little magical, it doesn't always have to be romantic. It doesn't have to be sexual, but there's magical events that happen between people. I suppose we can go back to our Rumi and Shams of Tabriz example that, you know, is kind of a good one here, whether they were romantically involved or not, who's to say, 
you know, two men in um, the Muslim world at the time of Rumi's life. Tradition says no, who knows? But in any case, they deeply transformed one another. And uh, I guess I'm a big believer in that. So, all right, I'll throw it back to you, Daniel. What do you think about what Jung is saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, yeah, I mean, I feel like this is an ex uh, an extension of that kind of exclusion, exclusion or exclusivity versus unique oriented discussion that we had yeah, yeah, yeah. episodes ago. You know that there are going to just be some people that, you know, touch you in some kind of a particular way. And if you allow the exploration of that relationship in whatever way that it manifests, it doesn't, you know, we're, we're referencing it as a relationship, not not exclusively sexual um, mm -hmm. But that the exploration of that relationship, there's power in that. And that doesn't necessarily even have to be at the cost of your traditional monogamous partnership, you know, but that we'll go back even further to the Wilhelm Reich stuff and that the repression of that even mental exploration, you know, let alone in reality that the actual exploration of that potential bond can make somebody feel some kind of way, some kind of tension, some sort of repression. There's an energy, an act of binding in this case that keeps those two things separate. And if we're going to use the kind of, I guess, quote or thought from Carl Jung in this case, that if it's, uh, you know, sort of a holographic kind of reflection of the relationship with the divine or the Godhead, as he calls it, then one could make the argument, one being me in this particular moment, that, <laughs> that, that, is similar to you restricting your own relationship with the energy before form. So the energy of love, right. As a representation of divinity that you yourself are wrapping yourself from that, you know, and again, it doesn't have to be at the behest of your monogamous relationship. It's just to say that like those things exist and saying that they don't exist is a repressive thing and then acknowledge not acknowledging that you yourself are feeling that then is again a continuation of, of repression and that doesn't allow yourself i think to express the full gamut of what you could you know and again like i said earlier that doesn't mean you have to divorce your partner and leave your kids because you know you had a good conversation with the waitress at applebee's yeah that would be a big stream <laughs> yeah, you know, like that be that would be an extreme, but it's also to say that you if you, you have a, a good kinship with somebody that you've known or you don't know or whatever, but there just seemed to be a bond there that you can't explore, you know, some kind of like emotional intimacy or, you know, something along this line, right? That this allows is a, yourself to be open. A heck of a question because I got a little bit more on this. I want to talk a little bit about Zen Master EQ and some of his attitudes about this similar feeling of connectivity. But I mean, it, so I'd like to do that too before we get out of here today. But you're bringing up something that I think is really deep. And I'd be curious, you know, for people who are listening, who we, you know, we have listeners who are international and like just to see what attitudes yeah. are in other cultures about this. But yeah, all I can say about this whole thing, I'm going to hold this belief no matter what. I'm going to say I believe in this whole way of looking at the world. And I'll give my EQ version of it in the second. I give my Carl Jung version of it. I'll kind of like talk about what I think me. This means to me in terms of the way that I would frame and view the world. But I could say American culture, in my experience of it overall, really hates this. Like it really doesn't like it at all. So if you have a different opinion, you can let me know. Yeah, I'm always doing a little bit of research in our episodes. 
and um, I gave another listen to like some of the Esther Perel stuff. And then, you know, there's Dan Savage, who's another person who comments on these things. And, um, and all I can really say is that this idea of like uh, exclusivity is really, really strong. And yeah. my experience at least has been, even when you say like, okay, well, this has to be platonic, but we could still be emotionally and intellectually close. A lot of times, or maybe the most of the time, yeah. as far as my experience, no way. No, yeah. The exclusivity principle is so strong in this culture. Yeah. And again, you know, we all have our own, if we frame these things as orientations, we all have our own orientations and that's not to judge anybody on this, but all I can really say is it's strong. And I had an interesting conversation, you know, Ryan Davenport, anthropologist on call. Uh, and we were talking about well, this. On demand. I, yeah. <laughs> or even on tap. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I brought this up and I can't remember if we talked about this or not, Daniel, but I've even had this with like male friends where it's just been like, no. You know, uh, you know, they'll get involved with someone and they have to cut those close male friends out of their life. It's that strong of an exclusivity mm. thing, you know, and it's like straight male friends. We ain't doing nothing with each other. Gone, you know, and so it really is very deep. And I don't know what to make of that. I've thought about this a lot in my life because this has been a kind of repeating theme of mm. my existence. You get close with people and you have and they'll cut, you know, there's boom, they yeah, cut they based cut. on this and they're gone. And, uh, and I've been, I have to say for myself, I think partially because I'm not really a creature of this culture for whatever reason, I kind of frame it in the idea, like I must have reincarnated from someplace else <laughs> and I don't really get this place. Um, but you know, that part was, has been shocking to me at times where I'm like, I can't believe it. Like you can never, you can never satisfy this demand for this, you know, exclusivity thing. And it's with dudes I knew where their wives would just be like, nope. This guy has to go. You're too close with him. No, I find it intimidating. And they've jettisoned, you know, like one of my best friends growing up, this happened. Like he cut me out of his life because well, his was, wife that, was, was like, that just oh. you or was that other people in general? Because I find it pretty much just across the board. Yeah, it that's was, what I'm saying. I find it's it across the board. They just cut people out. It's an amazing thing. Out. And again, I'm like kind of like talking about my own experience of this and with yours too. But like, I, if there's anything I don't understand, I really don't understand this. Like I find this, and I, again, I'm a, I'm a uniqueness dude or whatever, mm -hmm. but this I find very, very hard to understand. I don't know what that is inside. <clears throat> I've tried to ask people about even like wh what's going on inside of you where you feel like this is necessary or why you would even want to do that. Because for me, when I think about this coming from my mindset, I'm like, I don't even understand why someone would want that. You know, having a partner, I wouldn't want them to cut off their experiences or cut off other people. I don't need that. And even if someone offered it to me, I'd say like, no, keep that. I don't want you to do that for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 so I have, I, I have to be honest. I have no, I have no access into that. I don't know what that means, but let me throw it over to you. You can kind of share your own experience. So with I this guess what I, the question I have then is your assertion here is that the strength of this person's exclusivity requirement mm -hmm. is such that their partner cannot have deep connection with anybody outside of their own family or even to include their own family. I mean, I guess their... it must maybe include the nuclear family with their own kids, but you know, a right, lot of times it becomes a very household. narrow, yeah, yeah, it becomes very, very narrow. Yeah. Have you had that experience? Uh, no, it would never happen. 
I mean, you mean, I mean, have have I had that me personally or with friends of mine? With friends who have done that. Um. Yeah, yeah, but there there were looser connections, so it wasn't. I, I found that it was it was a two parter. That like mm-hmm. when people were single, they had more time to hang out, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Therefore, you're seeing them more, you're building this connection more, then that energy inherently has to be shuffled into their relationship because they're wanting to build and so on and so forth. And then, so there's a natural bit of a separation. But I do think that what you're bringing up is an interesting proposal and one that makes sense when you use that, I guess, ideology m- more ubiquitously amongst the population that there are some people that prefer to draw their partners away right we call them whipped right those people would be whipped right <laughs> right you know what i'm saying and it mean, goes, like it could be really anybody doing it right yeah, it goes both ways i'm not <laughs> saying it's not, it's not only women to men it's totally men mm-hmm. with women too you know yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's all over the place yeah it's all mm-hmm. over the place and so yeah so that's an i, I have never I, I have never really thought about it in general like that but it is it definitely makes sense it makes sense you know, yeah, it's been point. interesting because even if you're like, okay, this is a platonic relationship, it should be fine. Yeah. Even if you respect that boundary, we can still be emotionally, intellectually close. No, gone. Yeah. And, and I that's, think, and I, that's I agree stunned me. I've been like legitimately multiple times, like kind of like shocked. And I'm not the dumbest person in the world. <laughs> so if something happens, I usually will pick up the pattern. But this has yeah. been so outside of my own nature that I'm like sure. a little stunned yeah. you know, by this yeah. feature. It's very strange to me. It's just, I guess we can all think about it for ourselves, but it's something that's so um, alien to yeah. my inner world that I just, yeah. I can't understand it. I can't understand, I can't understand doing it. If someone asked me to do that, I'd be like, I don't think I'm doing that. Not like I don't love you, but I'm not doing that. And uh, and even if someone wanted to do it for me, I'd be like, please don't do that. So I right. can't understand it from like either end, you know? Right. But I guess that is Esther Perel's point. Asked about it, she says, This is the specialness vibe of people. They want the other person to have experiences, yeah. they want the other person to do these things. It's interesting, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting. In the interview that she does, that I used to kind of like tap into this idea of exclusivity and uniqueness, because I like her framing on that. Yeah. Uh, she kind of like talks about with the person who's doing the interview. It's a curious interview, Daniel. I'll pop it out to you at some point. It's a sure. guy named Tao Rispuli. <laughs> <laughs> the backstory is so great. So his mom went to Italy at some point, had a love affair with some Italian or like aristocrat <laughs> nobility. He was 50. I think she was maybe late teens, early 20s or something. He sure. was the product of this relationship. So he's like a uh, uh, Italian nobleman <laughs> by name, you know, but he's also like an American dude on some level. He's a very interesting guy. And then he was, apparently he married, a, there's an actress named Olivia Wilde. Does that name ring anything to you at all? Yeah, yeah. Okay, he was married to her. Okay. So they married when she was 18. He was like in his mid-20s or something. And they were married for 11 years. And the reason he's talking to Esther Perel is he's doing a documentary film about relationships because he, he made it apparently after his divorce with Olivia Wilde. She was like, I'm ending this relationship. And she did it, I guess, because she was like, I didn't experience enough of the world. I didn't get a chance to do the things I need to do. So you have to go. And as I was watching it, I had told the story of my own experience with my first love, Susan. And that same question came up and, you know, she proposed something different, you know, that we open up the relationship and do this in a different way. Mm-hmm. But he'd gone through the same thing. And apparently this experience drove him He's also a documentary filmmaker and a philosopher. So he started asking all these profound questions about the nature of love. And uh, 
And so it gets to a point where they're talking about this. And Esther Perel says, there's also this thing called emotional, emotional infidelity. <laughs> right. Have you even heard about this? So she's telling oh, this yeah. guy, yeah. you know, this, do you even get this concept? And she kind of like has this puzzled expression on her face. Like, that's a thing. Can you believe it? <laughs> and uh, I was watching going, yeah, Esther, I have a hard time believing it. <laughs> but it's a thing for sure. People really yeah. feel it. So yeah. anyways, I want to just, you know, we're going into this thing because you brought up this whole issue of like, yeah. I don't think it should be something where you feel like you have to give up your primary commitments and all that. You think there should be space for this. But for a lot of people, there really isn't, if I'm going right. to be honest about it. Correct. So I don't know how much that's an American thing. Esther Perel seems semi-shocked about it <laughs> still, you know, as a yeah, concept. So, I mean, for yeah. our, you know, our international audience, right, if, if you know, hit us up. I think we have about a third of our audience is is international. So, or even if you're from the U.S. but you have connections with people outside, ask them. You know, see what they yeah. see what their thoughts are. I mean, because I mean, we're gen genuinely curious. Yeah, I really am. No, I know a lot of people from other cultures, and there's different attitudes in other cultures. That's yeah. for sure. You yeah. know, I know a certain number of people from Eastern Europe, and there's lots of open relationships. And part of the the culture that I know, right? Yeah. Um, especially from Russia, you know. And at some point I got curious about this and I looked up like which cultures are the most fine with people, you know, being open in this way. And the big winner was drum roll. I still remember the number at 38%. It was Russia. Okay. 18% was like, was uh, Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And uh, our anthropologist on call demand or tap Ryan nice. Davenport has Bohemian roots. So I was just like, saying how do you think about this ryan yeah yeah <laughs> but he's a married guy so uh but in any case you know like do you have do you feel like you have bohemian roots and that's up to him to talk about um but now he's a married dude um but in any case it's interesting cultures do have differences but america yeah. this is very very not tolerant of this and like again it's been a shock if i'm honest about it i've been really surprised in my life people that i was very very close with gone and in some cases that's been with women I've known where I'd be like, okay, well, we could, we could be platonic. That's fine. You know, but I like the emotional intellectual closeness. No. Sure. Uh, and then even with dudes, it's very strange. Mm. Do you want, do you understand it personally? Like I have, I don't have any spot to get that. I just don't have it in me. So it's hard so, for me to even intellectually, I mean, I can understand it intellectually, but like the emotional stuff, like I don't get it on some level. I have two, there's two thoughts there sort of, parallel one is that it takes two to tango and that like yeah, yeah. i don't think that somebody proposes that as a means as a rule of engagement you know i think it sort of happens with time some people are more needy than others and that's a function of their person so it might be unconscious of course you might have somebody who that that is conscious with and they're sort of manipulating a little bit in that way uh, but then the other part is that, like, depending how people view relationships, if they view this, you know, partnership as the primary, most important thing in their life, then they will likely prioritize it as that and remove resources from other relationships and funnel it towards that. And and I don't know that that's necessarily wrong either. You know what I'm saying? It's just it gets to the the the, the question for me really lies in like, on the inside, right, and your heart of hearts, like, are you cool with that? Are you cool with the shedding of the strength of you and, the, and your community around you? You know, is that, is that your, because 
your actions are saying that that's a priority that that this is a priority but i'm wondering are you even aware that that's happening and i'm gonna maybe play uh or put more faith in the people and saying i'm not sure that they're conscious that it's actually happening you Mm -hmm. know that like oh i'm just hanging out with this person oh they have a huge friend group oh they have a huge family and i have you know like my obligations are now changing and therefore my buddies or my girlfriends or whatever they're just i'll see them when i see them they're always going to be there we have a history bop 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 but this is where i want to be and what's important to me and so people doing prioritization is just a natural function of life in general but i don't know that like people are aware of this particular point that they're that uh, it, it appears as if you have chosen this relationship not the person the relationship because they're different you know mm-hmm. they're they're linked but they're not the same over all of these other ones and that's okay that's your choice i just want to be i think it will be if you like for for example if you and your friend had a conversation and your buddy was like hey eric sorry man you know i'm just not going to be talking to you as much you know well, so or, the weird part about that is you really can't even have that conversation because exactly. it's already getting to the point of like hey i don't want to sound like i'm criticizing this guy's wife or something right you know, that's going to put him on the defensive. Right. But it would male it, friends, you know, it should it should come from the other person, actually. Yeah, yeah, my, it would have to be opinion. that it way. It would have to be that way. Hey, but I don't. What? Yeah, you're right. I don't even know if they necessarily even frame it that way. And it would be awkward to do it because then you really have to say, oh, my partner wants to cut me off from other sources or or connection. And so therefore, or they want to do it themselves. They want to do it themselves. Yeah, that's themselves. what I'm saying. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It might well, be listen, a little bit of both. On a certain level, if you're an exclusivity person for us exclusive people out there, mm-hmm. and this is what you want to do, rock on to you. Fine. You know what I mean? I think the point that I've always wondered about is whether this is compulsory mm. in the sense of like, there's a expectation that the culture has, that the partner has, that you're going to do this. And so people feel kind of under a pressure to do this. That I really wonder about, yeah. you know, especially for other people you know, when you talk about elements of where, I don't know, this could be, a you know, like a person where there's deep feelings between, you know, two people, um, even if the feelings can be like put in a platonic space, you know, people will demand that people cut, right? you know, cause they, you know, so is that compulsory or is that voluntary? I don't know the answer yeah, to that, I don't know. but I think there's a cult, there's a cultural, I mean, I'm going to take the position yeah. to the point of this podcast that there's a real cultural pressure around this because- sure. If it happens, if it seems to happen a lot, then you start thinking this is beyond just yeah. maybe each individual's personal decision. This is like a cultural thing that's deeper. And, and I, I guess I'd be curious to hear people like from other places. Do you even have an emotional infidelity concept? Esther Perel's point in part is like, not only other cultures don't necessarily have the physical infidelity idea. They kind of go more like, okay, we understand people aren't going to be really monogamous. Okay, let's just, you know. But American culture is not like that. American culture is like, okay, we're going to say we are, though we know people really are. American culture is monogamous in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. It's sexually monogamous for sure, because that's a, as Dan Savage likes to say, that's an extinction level de- event for a lot of relationships for people. That's going to blow it up, you most, know? Yeah. Not for me, you know? So it depends on I'm, your perspective, you know what I mean? I, I mean, it was, you know, it was my mom who we had on the podcast before. Yeah, we guys could check those episodes out. Uh, Nadia's Journey, uh, which is a yeah, you yeah. Know, fun episode to do with my mom. Definitely learn more 
uh, about her in that way. I loved, I loved the fact that I got to do that one as the interview because Daniel was like, you interviewed my mom. I was like, I don't even know your mom, but it was really fun. That was the point. Because it was like, it was like getting someone who didn't know her and, you know, it, I think it was interesting for us both, you know, yeah, all three of us. For, yeah, for sure. All three of us. Yeah. But yeah, she brought it up to me and this is probably like, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago, we were just talking about just stuff in general. And, and I was like, oh, well, mom, what if, you know, it was her ex-husband now. I was like, oh, what if he cheated on you? She's like, I mean, she's like, would he still want to be in a relationship with me or not? And I'm like, yeah, no, he he would. He just had a, you know, he had a fling with somebody or not. She's like, couples can work through whatever they choose to work through. That's their relationship to deal with. Mm-hmm. And the outside people, what are we going to say? If that person makes them happy and they're good for each other, he did this thing. Okay, I'm going to beat the guy up over, he still wants to work with me. Okay, we go get, go do some work on our communication. We work on things. I hear out what he has to say. He hears what I have to say. And we try and make our relationship better for it. She's like, but people make it through far worse things than that. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And so she's like, the, the point is like, well, that's new. So your, your mom is already probably in a, you know, a much more small group, a much more small minority of people. But that was- for She's me, already that, kind of like an outlier. You know that I mean? was one of the first times that I, you know, and that's coming from my mom, who's a, you know, mon- you know, serial monogamous person, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that was her. And maybe, you know, she's a little bit, she's older, than, obviously she's older than me and she's had more life experience and relationships and whatnot. And she's been, you know, a, a psychologist or, you know, seen patients in this way. And I just think that shaped her opinion, but it, it was, I wasn't at, it was, we weren't having the conversation about this particular thing. And so the fact that she said that was more, I don't know, it, it, changed the way that I saw relationships in general, number one, on that particular topic, number two. But then it also made the relationship like a thing that was alive, that is sort of like forward moving, that can take on different shapes and can be of different strengths and of different colors and different looks based on what you put into it, you know? So it's not just like a rigid thing that stands firm like this. So as we have these conversations like this, that whole thing, it's not just binary, right? It's not this one, this one, and then two magnets pull them in and now they're stuck together. No, because actually in reality, the one person has a community all around them and attached to them. And the other person has a community around them. It's attached to them. They both together as a couple have friends that they know as other couples that are attached to them and so on and so forth from work and play and wherever else they're into. And so you're never removing people from it. Actually, you're just asking them to change to ones that have more, I don't want to say this in a mean way, but superficial connections. So that mm-hmm, they can mm-hmm. be, you know, pulled from one to the other and, and whatnot, because it's going to happen again. Everybody has friends like it's it's going to do what it's going to do. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's a very I mean, all I can say is I think there's a cultural exclusivity paradigm. Yeah. When we could talk to other listeners from other places, I think Esther Perel's point is something like that's very that the extent of that is very uniquely American. That's her opinion. Mm-hmm. The degree of that is like very strong in this culture. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like from her being a cross-cultural person, she just doesn't feel like that's as strong in the cultures, you yeah. know, yeah. and American culture, as she points out, if uh, people feel threatened, if people feel like even, I guess we're talking about emotional infidelity as much as other infidelities, people will divorce, Yeah, you know, rather than, you know, what your mom is talking about, right? So anyways, it's interesting. I, all I can say is, again, from my point of view, I think at least from my attitude, and I'll take myself as the uniqueness person, mm-hmm. you know, like I would want to see a partner have the connections that they want to have. And I would feel bad cutting them off from those people. If it seemed important to them, I would have to respect their point of view. Yeah. And I would respect the fact that they have their own lives. 
I mean, you know, uh, when I die, I wouldn't expect someone to toss themselves in the funeral pyre. <laughs> you know, they have their own life. They have their own existence. And I wouldn't want to cut, cut someone off from people who they think are important. I just wouldn't right. want to do that. But I mean, that's really, I think in my trying to do this in these episodes is just to like present like, okay, I, maybe I do have a certain orientation to the world. Maybe I'm far on one end of this uniqueness paradigm or something. Right. 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 And for me, that's how it feels, right. you know, and I could acknowledge like if someone else comes through that someone feels deeply connected with, I'm going to like respect it. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, okay, that's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. But I don't think that's American culture. I really don't. You know, I think no, that's an outlier position. Yeah. I also think that like it, it looks at the way in which you view life in general, which has part been, you know, how we, which is the underlying theme of the episodes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How do you look at life? Yeah. How do you look at life? And and if you look at, and, and not just for you, not just as a, not just like exclusively, not relationship wise, but not exclusively for yourself, but for your intermediates, right? Your partner, your kids, your close friends or whatnot. If you view them as also walking on their path, and doing the same thing that you're doing, then I guess inherently you'd want them to have as full of an experience as as you as as they would. With the I mean, other- that's the core of the uniqueness yeah. idea, right? If you but, want to get to a core value there, yeah, that is it. Yeah, but with with the understanding that like you're both doing it voluntarily at the same time together, you know. So you're mm-hmm, in these mm-hmm. kind of part, like we're we're doing the same thing. We're just doing it together. It's not that like. I have to squeeze your hand and drag you and you have to drag me. And we're kind of like, it's not like it, it just, it's just a different view, a different long-term view. It probably says something about like people who are strong and uniqueness and people who are strong and exclusivity are going to have a hard time, like yeah, harmonizing their worldviews because mm-hmm. it's a, it's a different thing yeah. for me in the episodes. I think it's like trying to explain like what, the, I mean, what is this, what is, what's the underlying view of reality behind this? And I suppose right. the idea I would have is that there's deep karmic connections between people that are going to come from all kinds of places and all kinds of directions. And then the richness of life is fed by not just this one thing with this one person, but the richness of all of these connections right. is what feed, right. you know, and I obviously, and you know, the word karma fits into this, you know, and if we look at Jung and then maybe EQ as we kind of maybe have the last 10 minutes before we have to wrap up today or something, because it's a good, it's a good subject matter to like kind of do it and yeah. really kind of do it and close it out. But he obviously gets the idea that he thinks about say his connection with both his wife and then, you know, one of his romantic uh, partnerships, the Sabrina Spurine, he talks about her as like, it's a reincarnation driven thing. He really thinks about her that way, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even when he writes in some of his memoirs, he could still see he's still thinking about her decades later. And he thought, okay, we had some karmic thing between the two of us, right? And, um, and you know, he, he feels this way, you know, that it's kind of like this. It's, a, it's an underlying sort of semi-mysterious but karmic thing between like two people. And uh, EQ's thing is similar, right? As a Zen master, he says, there's this red thread of passion that can't be cut. Part of that is talking about like sexuality. He basically says, okay, you know, you can't cut sexuality. Sexuality is going to like be a thread through all people's lives. A lot of times he's read that way, but I I like to make the point about him, uh, you know, as one of my kind of personal favorites on masters and poets that there's clearly so much more that he's talking about. He's talking about the idea of like when you have a deep connection with someone, that's kind of uncuttable in its way too. You know, that's the red thread of passion. It's not just 
sex. It's something more than that. Because mm. he talks about that even with his daughter, you know, that threat that binds the two of them. He has like this great little verse where he says, watching my four-year-old daughter dance, I can't break free of her. That's the red thread of passion, right? Connecting two people together. And then he talks about it, obviously, in his more sexual love and romantic life, you know, where he talks about, you know, uh, uh, he says, a woman is enlightenment with when you are with her and the red thread of passion, uh, you know, binds the two of you together or something like that, right? It's not just sexuality, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, both of your passions flare inside you when you see. This isn't just like swiping left, right. <laughs> you know, on some app. He's talking about something deeper. Uh, towards the end of his life, he's really famous. Just throwing a little bit about him in here, you know, because it gives you another perspective besides just the Jungian one. Um but he you know, developed this very deep relationship with this blind musician and singer at the end of his life. And uh, he says something like, I was, I was like an old leafless tree until we met. Green buds burst out and blossomed. Now that, I'll, now that I have you, I'll never forget what I owe you. So mm -hmm. he's talking about something that like boom, just brings him back to life. And it's interesting because I thought about that Esther Perel thing with this too, where she says the people that she knew who came to life again, after the concentration camp experiences were the ones who like reignited the red thread of passion mm. to use EQ's thing. So anyways, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I wanted to kind of share those, like the Jungian thing, because he obviously thought about this in some karmic way. It looks to me like EQ is thinking about this in this deeply kind of karmic way. And all I can really say is I, I guess I strongly, strongly believe in that mm. to the extent that we're like creating a worldview. This is part of the soup of my worldview. This is going into the pot. Right. This mm -hmm. is a you know an ingredient in the thing, and um, anyways, I don't know. You got uh, you know at the end of this part, you got something more. I mean, what do you think about all of that? I mean, how does that manifest in your life? And you know, what what do you think about you that? You know, the, the the only thought I've had in my head for the last four minutes, I'm gonna ha I'm gonna share it now, and it's it's related. But um, you know, I asked this question like, what you know, what what are some of the benefits in in monogamy? And you know, I apologize to our listeners for me taking such a long time to come to this, but you know, whatever. I feel like. That... Oh, is this the thing that you asked like episodes and episodes and episodes ago? Yeah, I did. I know. You asked me this like literally like eight episodes ago and I, you asked me it and I was like, dude, I don't know what to say yet. Cause I hadn't had this conversation. That's right. Cause I don't, I, I don't believe in it as much as other people do. So right. anyway, so, so I didn't know how to answer it at the time. I was well, like, I'm going to come back. What what is in my head? There's there's a whole bunch of images playing in my head, but basically what I see is that like the original arrangement, right? Like an arranged marriage was done for bonding, building ties, connecting communities, very likely, right? Nobility, connecting families together, and nobilities, and keeping families in these together, kinds of right? things. So you, yeah, you strengthen yeah. these ties, and so that's one that's one part, and they were arranged, which is you know still how many marriages are in the world, and like we talked about last episode. Sometimes that works out really well. They're like, it's great. You know, and yeah. other times it's totally miserable. And usually the woman gets the short end of the stick on those deals. Usually. It also depends a little bit, like in talking with Ryan Davenport, uh, anthropologist on tap, um, the idea that like, as far as he's confirming to me, like 60% of Indian women, not that these are all arranged marriages anymore, but it tells something about the culture within urban centers are like having affairs. Mm-hmm. So that also matters too. You know, a lot of those arranged marriage things, they were sort of like marriages in name, but it wasn't yeah. 
based on the idea of an ideal love or something like we have in American culture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? American culture is, this is based on some more idealized version of love. Right. And that, that which I mean, that could be your attitude and your value system. There's no, no judgment even on that, but no. Yeah. So having that as like, as the, you know, source of sort of background to the argument, then that like that tradition then moves forward. And, and instead of somebody else telling you what to do, you are the one who's choosing it, you know, and then yeah, you yeah. recreate the large, banquet of putting two different fam- you know same family or two different families or clans or whatever together to have a meal to get to know each other so that they feel like maybe there'd be a less chance of war between them you know or whatever the case is you know or they can cooperate in life right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so there there i think there is therein lies the uh therein lies the benefit but then the in actuality once that the moment of the you know the nuptials is is completed then you have to go about and living right and that's the the more difficult part and that we live longer generally speaking life has more ups and downs there's more influences on our time and our attention and everything else um and and we're more separated at the same time that we have more opportunities to explore various experiences in life should we choose to do so that then these these types of relationships become a possibility actually mm. and that 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 in itself may be scary for some people who have yet to arrive to that sense of potential as a um as a i don't know as an opening for something different you know and that different is bad regardless of what, what that different is you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. So if something seems different or threatening, then it's like your car goes up, your hackles go up, and yeah, you feel threatened or intimidated by it. Right. And so yeah, that's, that's yeah, the, that's the resist. And I feel like that's the resistance is you mm-hmm. know, and that and that's okay. Like that that's we you know, I, I'm I'm okay with it. It's kind of a funny thing. All I can really you know say as we get to the capper of this is just to say, if I'm writing my own view of the world, yes, how. I, it works for me and we're all going to do this for ourselves. Yeah. My own experience of this has been that you're going to meet people in your life who are extremely special for whatever that magical or chemical thing is that happens mm-hmm. between people. Something like this happens, you know? And um, I haven't had the experience where it's been like a unilateral thing and been real. My experience this has been if you meet someone and it's, and it's a chemical, right? Mm-hmm. Then most people tend to really feel it. People know it. Mm-hmm. you know you could have like uh unrequited love or something and these mm-hmm. things happen but my own experience this has been more like when two people who are really bonded in this way what eq is talking about or what jung is talking about when that or like what Rumi's writing about you know if this happens both people seem to know it somehow you know yeah. and yeah. it's real and the, if you want to call it the red thread that binds the two people together or something that starts to starts to zing and vibrate between those two people something meaningful is happening there yeah and i suppose for me and again i'm coming from this uniqueness perspective but for me i i like the idea that there there will be space for those things to happen you know and i've again i think after my experiences with susan back in the day i have had this conversation where i've said like okay you know we're close but if there's someone else in my life who i think is important i'm not going to cut them out right because of you, I'm not going to do that. So don't don't think I'm going to because I'm not, you know. But it's because of this underlying value system, which I think, for what we're trying to do here, I think relates to a certain metaphysics, actually. Yeah. 
a certain way of looking at the world where you say, yeah, there are certain kinds of karmic threads between people that are so powerful and so significant that they should be allowed to be, mm -hmm. right? But again, that's not going to be, you know, necessarily everyone's attitude, okay? And it's, I don't think it's the cultural attitude either. I think no. the cultural attitude is kind of hostile towards this, if I'm honest about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even if, you know, even as we come to the end here, you know, I'm just thinking about like even current um, occupational tendencies for the population is to have five to seven careers amongst the time that you're working, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. Whereas before it would be one to two, right? You know, mm -hmm. like previous, you know, up until 19... Yeah, probably for my dad, because you got fired from one, then you got forced out or something. Like right. he would and probably then, try to stay at the same place forever if he could. And before right. that, it was a skill. You were a blank farmer. You were a mm -hmm. tradesperson. You were a whatever courier, whatever you were. You know, that's what you did. That's that's all that you did. That was your life. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, and your kids probably inherited it, and, and so on. You know, you, whatever you did. You know what I'm saying? And so there's just the the openness is 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 an ever increasing. Uh, facet of i guess i could say modern living you know in this way and and this i wonder about that a little bit we could pick it up in the next lap i didn't mean to, i mean that i don't want to kill your flow or anything like that no, yeah, but if but i look I'm at just, like my I'm grandpa just... he worked in steel mills his whole life but he was a pretty wild dude he was like uh promiscuous as hell he had a lot of people he knew you know he was always out doing something mm. <laughs> so i don't know it's an interesting question i don't know if this is like you know, I don't know what that means, you know, uh, just to throw it out there. It's yeah, kind well, of an end episode to dump something like that out. But anyways, I don't know. Yeah. Well, like Tucker Carlson, all we do is ask questions. I just ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the one point of commonality you have with Tucker Carlson. Human male. <laughs> the overlap. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay, two. Mm -hmm. Two points. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You both were there too, I suppose. That's right. Yeah. All, well, all yeah. yeah, that goes in the human <laughs> humanity of part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So I don't. I'm not trying to like. You know, you're kind of talking about it. There's more openness, maybe in some ways, but I don't know. It's kind of an interesting question. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Anyway, so to be yeah. continued, I suppose is. You know, I'm sure we're stretch run of this. You know, um, but uh, I think it's good questions. You know, and yeah. I think the underlying thing is like asking to the people out here, like, what That's do you it. believe? Yeah. Like, yeah. What yeah do you hit believe? us up. Yeah. We're we're up, showing right? like a way of thinking about a certain way of looking at the world. You'll come up with your own way, but yeah. it's an exploration of that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hit us up at ginandtantra at gmail.com. You can leave a message on the Instagram or just feel free to pop it in right in the YouTube video. However, you are consuming our media these days. We appreciate all of the, the love and the views and the, you know, the contacts. We definitely, uh, you know, the conversations that we have here ring and echo through my week, you know, and I definitely... Yeah bring them into my other conversations. And sometimes, you know, people who listen to us will hit me up and be like, Hey, you said this thing and made me think about that thing. And, um, you know, it's really wonderful. So, you know, thank you to everybody who's, you know, who's been rocking with us for a day or a year or, you know, whatever we appreciate everybody. So, um, yeah, hit us up, hit us back, share our work. We love it. Thank you everybody for listening. Eric, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, and for Eric, this is Daniel. We'll catch y'all on the next one. Peace. I want you to get together. I want you to get Put your hands together one time. I want you to get together.
want you to get together. 